In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Gina Yashere joins us today on Money Tales. Gina is currently producing, writing, and acting in the sitcom Bob Hart's Abishala on CBS, which she co-created with Chuck Lorre. Gina harnesses risk to get what she wants in life. She was a successful stand-up comic in the UK who had her eyes set on America. Gina took money that was earmarked for taxes in England and used it to finance the life she was striving for in the United States. Luckily for her and all of us who benefit from her comedy, in the nick of time, Gina scored a commercial in England, which brought in enough cash to pay the tax man. Hi, this is Cammie. Gina was born and raised in London, UK, of Nigerian parents. Her mom told Gina she expected her to grow up to be a doctor. When Gina later learned that she didn't like seeing blood, she switched to being an engineer, which eventually led to a career in comedy. Gina self-produced three separate one-hour stand-up specials, and her fourth is now streaming on Netflix as part of the stand-ups season two. She's also regularly featured on Comedy Central as a British correspondent on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Some important money topics Gina brings to life in this episode are how she shifted her mindset and money habits from gambler to saver. This led Gina to invest her savings in home purchases to keep herself from touching the money. She also covers the importance of being curious, a lifelong learner who is focused on improving her personal finance chops. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Gina Yashere. Gina Yashere, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here. Oh, well, thanks for having me, guys. To get the conversation started, would you please give us an overview of your life focusing on two to three pivotal moments who really make you the person that you are today? Obviously, being born and raised in East London and being spat on by skinheads, that was my first experience of racial discrimination. And I probably was about six years old. So that made me aware of how different I was. And I was in England and there were lots of people that looked like me around me where we lived. That was definitely one of the pivotal moments in my life when I was like, there are people that don't like me, not because they don't know me, but just because they don't like the way I look or what my parents look like. Definitely pivotal moment. One of the first ones in my life when I left engineering and found myself doing comedy, that was definitely a pivot. I never saw myself as a comedian or someone who could be on television. People on TV were a different breed of person. I was just a regular person. So to find myself leaving engineering and within six months finding myself performing on television and going, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Big, massive pivot. 
The last pivot would be when I decided to leave England and go to America and seek my fortune. I'd always wanted to come to America since childhood. I thought you had better candies than us, better toys than us. Every TV show I watched, it looked like the schools were all next to a beach and everybody was hanging out at the beach after school with Brad and Chad and riding cool bicycles and solving crimes after school. From childhood, from four years old, I was like, I need to be in America. So I managed to make that dream become a reality. And that was another massive pivotal point in my life when I finally was able to get on a plane and just leave and started my life again in the States. Those are pretty powerful, pivotal moments. I can't wait to learn more about them. Can we go back to your childhood in East London? Tell us what it was like from a money perspective. What was going on with money in your household? We were quite poor. I didn't know that because my mother had come from a very wealthy Nigerian family, but she was a girl in a very patriarchal society. So she was educated because she was super smart when she was younger. In Nigeria in the 40s and 50s, the girls weren't really educated that much. They were more geared towards wifedom, having kids and stuff. My mother's father noticed her keen intelligence and sent her to school, paid for her education. She went to boarding school and became a principal of a school by the time she was 24 years old. She was very highly educated. Then my father sent her to England to study. She came to England. My dad was paying for her studies and she was living a very nice life. But then my granddad, her father, died. And as is the patriarchy, all his wealth went to her older brother, his son, who squandered all the money. And basically, my mother was left destitute in England. My mum met my dad in England and they had us kids. But my dad ended up going back to Nigeria, long story short. So my mum was left single and alone with a bunch of kids in England with no money. I didn't feel poor. Looking back, it was obvious that we were poor. I kind of knew because there's certain things I couldn't have as a kid, certain expensive toys that I'd seen, catalogs, and I'd be like, I want this, and there was no way I was getting that. We lived in a council flat for the first few years. Council flat is like living in the projects, a similar thing. It's low-income housing. And I remember that particular apartment that we living in had mould all over the walls. I remember distinctly as a child, the house was so damp that there were green spots on the wallpaper that kind of transferred itself like alien spore to our bed sheets and our blankets. And this is why to this day, I cannot stand those blankets with the satin, cannot stand them because I remember them picking up those green alien spore fungi on my blankets as a kid. So we were poor, but my mother managed money well. She worked hard. She couldn't work as a principal in England because England was super racist in the 60s and 70s. So she did our job. She did secretarial work. She used to import stuff from Nigeria and sell it out of our house, set up her own business out of her apartment. And she used to sell to other immigrant families on the estate where we lived and did her layaway plan. She'd have a little notebook and she'd sell them some clothing or whatever, and they'd pay in installments. She was a businesswoman from day one trying to make ends meet. But yeah, we were definitely not wealthy people. There were five of us. So it was my mama and five kids. Gina, would you tell us a little bit more about the time when you were six years old and this horrible skinhead spit on you? This was a regular occurrence. The first eight years of my life, I was in an area of London called Bethnal Green, East London. I'm a Cockney by birth. I'm a true Cockney. I was born, raised East London. Tower Hamlets, which was the area that encompassed Bethnal Green, was a very low working class area. 
when immigrants were coming in from the Caribbean, from Africa, from India, Pakistan, all places that have been colonized by England and immigrants from those countries were then coming to England, they'd end up in those areas because they were cheaper areas to rent. But the working class whites that were there were resentful of the immigrant influx. At the time, there was a right-wing group called the National Front, which considered themselves a political party, but they kind of weren't. They were a very far right-wing group, and their graffiti was ubiquitous. It was all over walls, all over London, especially Bethlehem at the time. And it was a very xenophobic group. A lot of the white working-class people were members of the National Front. So it was constant abuse when we walked the street. I remember walking down the street with my mum and a car swerved into a puddle and completely drenched us. And we'd get shouted racial epithets as we walked down the street. This particular spitting incident, we lived in this apartment building and they had trash sheets where you put your trash down the chute if you lived on a higher floor and the trash would go down to the bottom into the big trash can for the whole building. Sometimes that trash chute would get blocked. It would be my job as a kid to bring the trash from the house and walk it down the stairs and put it in the trash. One particular day, my mum always said if the bad boys, that's what we used to call the bad, the bad boys. They were skinheads and white guys that used to hang out in the stairwell, just smoking, doing whatever. My mum would always warn me, if you see them, just don't make eye contact. Go do your business, get back up. On this particular day, they were standing in the stairwell as I brought the trash down. And as I ran back up the stairs, one of them shouted out a racial epithet and spat on me. And at the time I was like six or seven and my mum was still dressing me in dresses before I was old enough to say, no, I don't do dresses. (laughs) So I had a dress on. So the spit landed on my thigh as I ran up the stairs on the back of my thigh. So I ran up to my apartment and I just said to my mum, oh, mum, the bad boys spat on me. And she just got some cloth and just wiped it off me while muttering under her breath. But these were just occurrences that happened all the time. Living in East London in the 1970s, it was just a thing that people of colour had to put out with. Do you know, that sounds really hard and frustrating. I was so young at the time, I was like, well, this is the reality of my life. Looking back, I'm going, oh my God, look at what we went through. But at the time, it was just, this is our life. We may just make sure we avoid those people. How were you thinking about your future when you were a kid? My mom obviously told me I was going to be a doctor because immigrant family, they always pick the jobs that get, have the most security and the most money and whatnot. My mom always picked our job. She was like, you're going to be a doctor. Younger brother, you're going to be an engineer. You're going to be an accountant. So I always thought I was going to be a doctor, but then I also had a tendency to perform in class and crack jokes and stuff. At school, the teachers were always like, you should do some sort of performance. But my mother was like, she can act like a doctor when she becomes a doctor. That's how she can become an actor. I was always planning to become a doctor and maybe be an athlete on the side because I was a bit of a sprinter. I loved the 100 meters. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be a doctor and then I'm going to be an athlete on the side. And all these things make great money. So I'm going to be rich. I always thought I was going to be rich. And why do you think that was? Why were you interested in being rich? Was it just an antidote to the situation you were growing up in? Yeah, it was an antidote to the situation. And my mother always told us that she'd come to this country to make sure that her children had the best opportunities to be successful. And so we were going to be successful. That was always what was drummed into our heads. You will become a doctor. Then you'll buy a house. You'll get married. You have a certain number of kids and you will be successful. Because this is why I sacrificed the cushy life that I had in Nigeria for you kids to have this in England. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) What do you think in your mind wealthy was? 
Wealthy was been able to buy the best clothes because at school, all the kids had the name brand clothing, the Adidas, the Nikes, the Tashini track suits, and we couldn't afford any of that stuff. Me and my brothers would cheat and my mum would buy us two striped sneakers and we'd make a third stripe and try and make our own Adidas. And my brother became quite good at turning no-name tracksuit tops into name stuff. He'd cut the logo out and he'd make the logo and we became quite adept at that. As a kid, being wealthy was just being able to afford those clothes and look like the other kids at school who had money so we wouldn't get teased for not having the cool clothes. So I wanted the sneakers. I wanted the good clothes. I didn't want the free school lunch. I wanted to be able to go out at lunchtime and buy McDonald's if I wanted. My mom gave us a certain amount of pocket money and it didn't stretch to that. It stretched to nice candies after school because candies and sweets were quite cheap then. But yeah, those are the kind of things as a kid, that is what denoted wealth and kids being dropped off by their dads in nice cars. How did you go from a doctor athlete wannabe to an engineer? I couldn't stand the sight of blood. So I got advanced level biology when I was like 18. My mother picked all my subjects. I was studying for physics, biology, and French advanced level subjects, which once you pass those, then you go on to college to do the degrees. It came to biology class and we had to dissect a rat. And that's when I was like, I don't like this blood and guts. No, this is not for me. I can't do this doctor thing. I went home and said to my mom, look, the doctor thing isn't going to work out for me, but I think the engineering I'm interested in. What happened in the 80s, they were trying to encourage more girls to get into engineering. Some women from the engineering industry training board had come to my school to talk to us and it sounded interesting. I was like, oh, great. It means I don't work in an office. I don't have to work with blood. I can learn how to fix things. That sounds great. I went home after that biology lesson and said to my mom, I'm switching to engineering. I want to be an engineer now. And she was like, doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant. So she's like, well, it's on the list. Okay, you be an engineer. And then she turns to my younger brother. You now will be the doctor. Forget engineer, you'll be the doctor. I went down the conveyor belt of kids. Were you doing any stand-up or any comedy? No, not at all. I finished my A-levels. I changed from physics, biology and French to physics, maths and French. I gained enough qualifications to go to college. But then I was like, I don't want to go to college because that means I'll be stuck living at my mum's house for how many years I'm in college because she was not going to allow me because she was very overprotective as well. So she was not going to allow me to go to some college hundreds of miles away and be out from under her watchful eyes. So I was like, I want a job so I can earn money, so I can have a car and have all the things that I want in life. I don't want to wait another three to seven years for that. So I didn't go to college. I said to my mom, I'm going to get a job as an engineer, as a trainee. I will study for my degree part-time in the evenings and weekends while working full-time and earning a salary. And my mom was like, as long as you're getting a degree, because I need to boast to my people in Nigeria that my daughter has a degree. As long as you're getting your degree and you're an engineer, also a very good thing to boast about to my family in Nigeria. Okay, so I got a job as a trainee engineer. I started earning a salary at 18 years old. The first thing I did was buy a car. A car for me meant freedom because my mum was always so overprotective. She's like, you cannot go out because if you go out when you're on the bus on the way home, you can be attacked and kidnapped and you cannot go out clubbing because you'll be out late at night and I'm not paying for you to go out to these places. So where are you going to get this money from? Working gave me the money to be able to go and do what I wanted to do and having a car meant 
I'm not going to be kidnapped off the bus because I have a car and I'm driving myself places. I wanted a job to get money, to get freedom and to be able to buy all the things that I've always wanted that my mother wouldn't or couldn't afford to buy. What did that feel like for you? Fantastic. It was a whole new lease of life. I was out every weekend. I drove everywhere I wanted to go. And then I started saving and me and my friends started traveling. My dream had always been to go to America. So my first trip out of the country was me and a bunch of friends flying to New York with empty suitcases and buying everything that we'd seen in Yo! MTV raps videos. I came back from America with the gold dookie chains, all the stuff that the rappers wore in the videos and the big leather coats and the best sneakers. We saved for a full year and came out to America with $1,000 each that we'd been saving all year and just went to town and shops like crazy and came back to London looking the flyest and the coolest. That for me was success. What a fun story and what a fun trip. What does money mean to you today? Still freedom. Same thing. Money is freedom. People say, oh, money doesn't buy happiness. But in a way, for me, it does. (laughs) I'm a happy person anyway. But money buys freedom, which means more happiness, I think. It means I can travel to lovely places if I want. I love food. I like going to different restaurants and eating at different places. If I see something I like, I want to be able to buy it. For me, it's still the same thing. I'm a lot better with money than I used to be. I was terrible with money. I traveled. I liked to buy nice things. I wanted all the things that I didn't have. Jewelry, sneakers, clothes. I was constantly going overdrawn at the bank because I'd just see something and I'm like, I want it. I'm having it. And I'd get my card out. And whether the money was in the bank or not, I'd get the card out. In the 80s and 90s, they couldn't check your balance quite as easily. There was none of this, oh, no, your card has been declined. They would swipe it through and then your bank would come back and go, you haven't got this money. So I was terrible with money constantly. At one point, I was so bad that my bank closed my account and sent me a check for the balance saying, we no longer want your business. I mean, has that ever happened to anybody else that you've heard of? What did you do? And were you living at home with your mom? I was living at home. I had a job. I was blowing my wages every week and I was blowing so much money that even when I was getting paid, I was still overdrawn after I'd been paid because I'd been spending so much and having such a great time. And in the end, I had to open another bank account with these banks that open accounts with people with terrible credit. So I didn't have a debit or credit card anymore. It was just a bank account where you put the money in and my wages were paid into that, but I could only spend what I had in account. So there was no debit card or credit card. If I wanted to buy something, I'd have to go get the cash out and buy it. So I had an account like that for several years because no bank could give me a bank account. I was terrible with money for quite a long time. When did that change? Was there anything that caused it to change? I got into gambling for a while. Me and my best friend went to Las Vegas for a vacation because I loved America, as I said. So I'd go to New York, we'd go to Florida, and then we end up in Vegas. I'd never gambled in my life. I had no interest. We went to Vegas to stuff our faces at the buffets and watch fun shows. I just happened to be sitting next to a roulette table one day waiting for my friend to come down from her room. And I was like, wish she would hurry up. I'm so thirsty. And the dealer at the table was like, well, you know, if you're gambling, you get free drinks. And I was like, oh, really? But I don't gamble. I don't know how to play these games. And she was like, oh, roulette is very easy. And she showed me how to do it. And I was like, oh, this is fun. And then my friend came down and I was like, look at this. 
roulette. And that was a four-year gambling fugue. By the time I got the gambling habit, I'd left engineering. I was working as a comedian and I was traveling all over the country doing shows. And I was a member of every single casino in pretty much every city in the country that I traveled to. I'd go and do a show, I'd get paid, and I'd go to that local casino and gamble it all away. I always paid my mortgage. That was one good thing about me in that I was never one of those people that was going to lose my house and lose everything. I always paid my mortgage, I paid my bills, I paid my health insurance and stuff, and then I spunked the rest. My mortgage was paid, but I never had any savings because I was blowing everything. And this went on for about four years. It came to a head when I went to Las Vegas for a friend's wedding. I was only there for the weekend and I just bought a house. I'd saved up a lot of money and bought another house and I was doing the kitchen up. I'd gutted the house and I was doing all these renovations on the house. And I went to Las Vegas and I lost the kitchen in a weekend, about 15,000. I came back and I was like, I just lost the kitchen. This is absolutely ridiculous. This has to stop. And I went cold turkey. Up until that point, I was bad with money with the gambling, but also good in other ways in that I knew I was bad with money because I have an addictive personality. So whenever I got a good chunk of money, I'd go, I need to do something with this money real quick before I spunk it away on crap. I bought my first property in 98 when I was 26 years old or something. I'd been saving. I had this money. I was like, I need to do something with this money. I was like, I'm going to do something stupid with it. And I put that down on a place. So even though I know I'm not great with money, I've got better in that. Whenever I get a chunk of money, I go, I'm going to do something with it. And I've invested in real estate over the years. So I was dumb gambling and losing money all over the world for a few years. But at the same time, not everything. I was still reasonably smart enough never to go completely broke. I've never been bankrupt. I came close to it when I first moved to America, though. What amazing stories. (laughs) Sitting here listening to you say that you're bad with money, yet you were buying properties and you were paying your bills. Even though I was doing stupid stuff with my money, and I kind of don't regret any of that because I had a wonderful time doing it. Me and my best friend went to Sydney, Australia for three weeks. We stayed at this four-star resort and we called them up. We were like, we're gamblers. So we know that you would comp the room if we gamble and they were like, yeah, but you have to send us 5,000 each. And we sent them 5,000 each that they kept. And then we flew over to Sydney and we stayed at this wonderful hotel with a casino in it. It was called Star City. And we stayed there for three weeks. And in a day, we'd go and sightsee and do all the things that you do in Australia. And then at night we would gamble all night till the following day. And then we'd sightsee in the day and gamble at night. And we did that for three weeks straight. And at the end of three weeks, we were evens. We hadn't lost any money because we'd lose one night, we'd win one night, we'd lose, we'd win, we'd lose, we'd win. And at the end of the three weeks, we hadn't lost any money and they'd come to the room. So we'd stayed for three weeks in Sydney, Australia at a four-star resort for free. Sometimes the gambling was fun and it worked out. Most times it didn't. I say I've never been good with money, but I've got better as I've got older. I'm getting a certain amount of success now with my TV show and the specials and stuff. And as I'm older, I'm like, all right, now I've got to invest. I've got to think about my pension. I'm thinking of that sort of stuff was before I never really thought of that. Way to go. I'm glad. And I also love the story that you enjoyed it. And to Sandy's point, it was sort of a barbell approach, really safe and really, really (laughs) risky. But it sounds like you did it at a time of life where you could take on that risk. And now you're thinking differently. Yeah, I wouldn't do that now. 
now I'll go to Vegas for New Year's Eve and I'll have a certain amount of money and I'll go, how much can I afford to lose without it upsetting me? Okay, then that's what I'm spending. And I can know that this is what I could afford to lose without it having a detrimental effect on the rest of my life. And so I can have fun with it now. It's not an addiction like it was. And I think part of the addiction was me trying to be successful and get rich and get more money, thinking that gambling is going to be the key. I wasn't making lots of money and I wanted that lifestyle that you see. So I thought gambling was the way to do it. Obviously, it was not. Tell us more about making money now in the profession you're in. As a stand-up comic, I spent a lot of years making a decent living. I made a very good living in England before I left to come to America. Then I came to America and started again from scratch. When I came to America, I was in my 30s and I had already owned two properties in England, one which I sold before I came out, but I've still got the first one I bought. I'm a property owner. I know I'm coming to America to start my life again and start from scratch as a comedian because nobody knows me here but I'm not going to live a crappy lifestyle. I want a nice apartment because I was watching Melrose Place and going, that's the lifestyle I want. I want an apartment where there's a pool and I hang out with cool people. I still have those childhood dreams. I don't want roommates because I'm too old for that. I want a nice apartment. I want a nice life while I'm following my dreams. So when I came to America, I had some savings and I'd obviously sold my second house that I bought and I was living off that profit in America, because I was earning no money in America for the first few years. So I was living off that profit and living off money that I was supposed to have used to pay my taxes in England. I was like, they can hold on for a bit. I need this money to set myself up in America. So I had an apartment. I bought a car when I was here. So I had a reasonably nice life in the States, but I was living on borrowed time because it was not my money. The tax man in England did come after me. And at one point I was like, I might have to go bankrupt because I do not have the money to pay this huge tax bill that I owe in England because I've been using it to finance the life I have in America while I'm trying to make it. And me and my best friend, who's also an accountant and was looking after my accounts in England, discussed me going into liquidation because I had a company in England. We discussed it seriously. And then I was like, I can't do it. I just, there's something in my soul. I just can't do it. I'm going to hold on for a couple of more months and see what happens and see if I can pay them off in installments and we'll work something out. Luckily for me, I landed a commercial in England. I think the commercial paid me about 80000 And that commercial saved my life because that was the exact amount that I owed the tax man. I was mad because I was like, I'm not going to see any of this money. But I was also happy because I was able to, in one fell swoop, pay off all my debts in England and been able to start a fresh, clean slate in America with no debts. And then I spent the next few years in America slowly building my brand. And I'd fly back to England to do shows because England, I was more famous. I'd call it a bank raid. I'd call my agent and go, I'm coming back. It's a bank raid. And I'd fly back to England, do a bunch of shows. And then I'd bring that money back to America and live off that money. And then when that money ran out, I'd fly back to England, do a tour. And that's what I did for like seven years while I built my brand in America. And then I started to make my own specials and started to pick up work in America. And I started saving. I remember reading this book called The Richest Man in Babylon. It was going round on Facebook at the time that this was the book to read, to learn how to accumulate wealth. And after reading that book, I came away with The guy who became the richest man in Babylon saved 10% of everything he earned. So then I've started doing that. I opened a savings account called the 10% account. 
And from then onwards, I made sure I saved a minimum of 10% of everything. As soon as I got a check, 10% went into that account immediately. And then I lived off the other 90%. And I've been doing that ever since. That 10% became a sizable deposit. And when I got this TV show, before I even started getting paid for this TV show, when this TV show was just a pilot, I had a sizable deposit for a house in my 10% account, which I used to buy a house in LA. People thought I was crazy because they were like, you've only got a pilot for Bob Hart, Sabishola. You don't even know if the show's going to get picked up. But as you know, I'm a gambler. I've always been a risk taker. And I was like, well, I'm going to manifest this. I'm going to buy this house in LA with this money that I've been saving for the last five years. And if the show gets picked up, then I move straight into the house and start work on the show. And if the show doesn't get picked up, well, then I've got a very expensive rental property. But luckily the show got picked up and I moved into the house. So I've gone from the 10% account now, started writing for this TV show and acting on this TV show and earning a hell of a lot more money than I'd ever earned in my career before. Because as a stand-up, on a good year, I'd make six figures. But now we're going into seven figures, writing and exec producing and acting on a primetime television show. I went to all the rich white guys in my writer's room and I was like, what do you do with your money? Where do you put your money? I basically put my money where they put their money. I've now got an investment portfolio. I don't understand stocks and shares and whatnot. I was like, I want to invest in companies that help the environment. I don't want to invest in any regimes that I don't believe in. Just do something across the board, sustainable energy, that kind of thing. The last couple of years, I've got a figure in my head. If I have this much in an investment portfolio, then I'll be able to live off the interest, which will pay me maybe 100000 a year, whether I'm working or not. That's what I'm aiming towards. So now I'm focused on stacking this investment portfolio and getting the interest and building a sizable sum that no matter what happens with this TV show, I've got this pot of money. I've also bought another house in LA because houses are what I understand. I've still got my place in London. I have a little place in Thailand that I bought a few years ago. And I've got two houses in LA. And I'm just all about constantly trying to invest because I'm older now. As a stand-up comedian, you spend your time just living hand to mouth and just trying to pay bills and whatever. I've never had time to save for a pension. I was like, I've got to pay these bills. I've got to pay for these flights. So now I'm in a position where I can actually really save for my future. That's what I'm doing now. And you've got your number, which I think is great. You've got your target and you're also able to focus on what you're really passionate about. When you tell your story, I'm reflecting on your story about your mom being the entrepreneur she was. I'm seeing this entrepreneurial person with these four investment properties all over the world. Really an amazing story. And thank you for sharing the 10% account. It's really an important message for our listeners to hear. We talk a lot about pay yourself first, power of compounding, when you could still do all these great, wonderful things, but have something at the end to show for it. I really appreciate that you've named the account. Names are so important. Oh yeah, literally 10% account. It's still there. And I still put loads of money in it, but now I'm taking some of that 10% and putting it in the investment because sitting in the bank is earning no money. Whereas the investment portfolio is making a nice anywhere between six and 8% right now, which is fantastic because at one point I had a sizable sum and I was like, should I pay off the mortgage on this house that I'm living in? Most rich white guys in the world don't pay off anything. They borrow against their stocks. I'm still old school in the way I think, especially the way my mom thinks. My dream is to have no mortgage. 
at the moment, I haven't paid it off because I've looked into it and I've studied it and I've talked to various people. And at the moment, my mortgage rate is 2.75% and the money is earning 8%. So it doesn't make sense. But once I surpass the number that I have in my head that would give me a comfortable retirement, anything over that, I'm paying off that house, even though I know it's not the smartest thing to do. But for my peace of mind and my sense of achievement to have a house that I own outright is the dream. So I will do it at some point when I get to the figure that I know that I'll have a comfortable retirement, regardless of whether I'm working or not. What does your mom tell your relatives in Nigeria about you? She loves the fact that I'm a comedian now because I've been on television. When I first started doing comedy, she was like, what, so you've left engineering to become a clown? This is nonsense. But then luckily for me, within six months of starting comedy, I got on a talent show on television with a guy who was our version of Jay Leno. And after that, I was vindicated. And my mum was now, oh, yes, my daughter is a clown. I always knew she was going to be a clown. She's the best clown in the world. Since then, she's been very supportive and happy. And she tells people in Nigeria, oh, yes, my daughter, she's a famous comedian and actor and writer. She loves it now. And obviously, I've always looked after her. So she knows that whenever she needs anything, she can just call me up and she has it. She knows that she's well looked after. That must feel so great for you. Yeah. My dream is to make enough money to be able to buy her a house outright. Not at that point yet, but one day continue to be focused on your goals, you'll get there for sure. (laughs) You've shared a lot of wisdom and lovely humor and stories. What's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners that perhaps we haven't covered yet? Look, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the finer things in life. I'm not a person that believes in just stashing money for the sake of stashing. Some people just save and save and they deny themselves. You only live once. You don't know how long you've got on this earth. If you spend all your time stashing money, but never actually get to enjoy what money brings, what's the point? I'm all about enjoying your money. Yeah, save a percentage, do the 10%, but nothing wrong with enjoying spending money. Money is for spending. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Probably with my financial person. Because every month I have a certain amount that I take out of my bank account and invest. And if I have a particularly good month, like I get a good residual check, I'll email her and go, okay, I've had a good month. Double the amount of money we're putting into the investment. So that's probably going to be the next conversation I have, I think, money-wise. And plus that my missus has just spent $500 on my credit card for the groceries for the house. I just saw an alert pop up on my phone and I'm like, you sneaky devil. So we'll be having a conversation about that. $500. What did you buy for five? There's only two of us and two puppies. <laughs> this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being our guest and sharing with us all your money tales. Thanks for having me. It's been great. We wish you continued success in your career and appreciate all the laughter you bring to the world. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, Cammie, I enjoyed that conversation with Gina Yashere. What are some of your biggest money insights from what Gina had to share with us? She was great, wasn't she? What really stood out for me is that Gina claimed she was bad with money. But was she? She was a spender and obviously she was a gambler and got into some credit card debt. But she was really astute knowing her habits and doing something to stop herself from spending and gambling, which led her to having a really good real estate portfolio. So I appreciated that she was always learning. She was constantly seeking insight, whether 
learning from her mom and her mom's experiences and teachings, learning from people she worked with. I think Gina was hard on herself. She wasn't bad with money. She had a higher risk tolerance. She certainly did. I agree with you. I think anyone who is willing to be curious and to learn and to understand how personal finance works and how money can work for them is by default not bad with money. I always cringe a little bit when people say that they're bad with money because it sounds so self-defeating and so judgmental. And she's learned a lot over time and she's continuing to learn. And that's only going to make her better with money. I want to talk about the 10% account that Gina set up. And I don't want to talk about the account itself. I want to talk about the name of the account because I thought Gina naming the account was brilliant. When we put names on our accounts or on trusts we set up or on foundations or donor advised funds or different vehicles that we're using, we label all of those things in a meaningful way where there's an emotional connection between us and the account or us and the trust or us and the charitable dollars. That's a game changer. That connection is so important. It allows us to express what's most important to us. And it is a powerful way to demonstrate the alignment between your goals and your values and your personal financial resources, whatever they are. It's no wonder she's a comedian and a storyteller. And to me, that's part of it. Through naming it, it's becoming part of your story and it's becoming part of your life. If you're going to put money in a savings account, that sounds kind of boring. Yeah, it sure does. So if you're putting money in your 10% account, that's so well-defined. You know exactly what you're doing. I also wanted to highlight what Gina was sharing with us at the end of the conversation about her mortgage, about the conundrum she was having about whether she should pay off her mortgage where she locked in a really low interest rate. I liked where Gina was going with keeping the mortgage, but she also mentioned that paying off the mortgage would provide her with some peace of mind. I think there's some tension there. And that's where individuals really need to get clear on what their values are, what's most important to them. Even the cheapest mortgage could get paid off if it's going to provide enough peace of mind. I just wanted to highlight that because it's one of those things where there is an optimal financial answer, but there's also an optimal emotional answer, which can be very different. And the emotion might be more important. At times, you want to know, you want to be thoughtful about it because there is an optimal financial, but maybe it just helps someone sleep well at night. And hopefully when thinking about mortgages and other personal financial matters, folks are thinking about the big picture. It's easy to hone in and focus on one particular mortgage or one particular element, but you want to make sure you understand how that element fits into your overall financial plan and how it's going to help make everything come together. And yes, just like you said, Cammie, sleep well at night. That's so important. Thank you again, Gina Yashere, for joining us on Money Tales and sharing your great stories and your humor. And thank you for continuing to share that humor publicly. And we look forward to watching your successes. And to our Money Tales listeners, as always, thank you for joining us. Share with us your stories by emailing podcasts at Asperient.com. And we look forward to hearing your stories. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.